Friends and neighbors, you're listening to Portland from the left. My name is Josh and I use he, him pronouns. My name is Piper and I use she, her pronouns. And today we're talking to our friend Thursday about money and politics in Portland and the state. My name is Thursday. I use she and they pronouns. I write about local politics over at pdx.vote and I just follow everything that kind of crosses my interest. We're going to be talking pretty broadly about campaign finance, how it affects Portland, the county, uh, Multnomah County, and uh, various other places, the state. We probably won't dig into too much federal uh, campaign policy stuff. And to start with, we thought it might be useful to talk a little bit about the different entities that move money around inside of politics. Um, yeah, so Thursday, what's your favorite one? What's what's Maybe what's the most dangerous one that you're worried about? We have to talk about PACs to start with. Political action committees or political alliance committees, depending on who's doing the defining. There's both state-level PACs and federal-level PACs. Most of the, the PACs that you will encounter in an Oregon um, election are kind of the, the standard issue pack, but there's also what's called a super pack. A super pack has even less constraints on how they spend money. So a pack can donate directly to a candidate's campaign. They have usually a couple of different candidates or different issues they'll be working on at any given time. And they bring in donations of their own, uh, which they sort of just, you know, put into a pot and redistribute. Um, A super PAC is usually um, a pile of money that it's a little hard to tell where it came from. But they don't give money directly to candidates. They spend money around an election, around a race, uh, but they're not supposed to coordinate with an individual candidate. So a super PAC can do something like an ad bashing a particular candidate without ever talking to the person who's running against that candidate. So they can kind of do whatever they want in some regards. So with the PACs and super PACs, just to bring it to some examples from our, um, what, what I think is our favorite election, the 2020 Portland mayoral election. Mm-hmm. So specifically, I believe um, it was United for Portland, which was the PAC that was kind of anti-progressive that was uh, trying to get Wheeler elected. Mm-hmm. And w- were they a super PAC? I believe, but I would have to double check that one. Um, but I believe that they were just a standard issue um, pack here in Oregon. So is a standard issue pack allowed to coordinate with the campaign? They are because they're allowed to do things like endorse a particular candidate and they can have conversations about, hey, we're giving you this check, that sort of thing. So they are allowed to coordinate. So the the finances for that pack, I know we're in Orstar because I've been looking into them a little bit. Um, just for some kind of historical reference and kind of trying to understand some of these things. Um, one of the things I noticed was that um, they, as a PAC, were also receiving donations from PACs. Uh, specifically, the one I noticed that was a lot of money was the, uh, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, but it's the Portland Metro Realtors PAC, mm-hmm. um, gave $200,000 to them. And I'm mentioning that because it, it, previously, I think I've mentioned this before about this PAC and about the people that funded it. In my mind, um, the Portland uh, Business Alliance was the big culprit there when actually, you know, they only donated $50,000. So so getting a handle on the entities, so in this case, a PAC that was specifically built up to reelect Ted Wheeler and avoid electing 
um, Ianeron in, in that moment that's now kind of defunct, but the entities that funded it are still around, still much moving money around. Um, specifically the Portland um, Metro Realtors Pack has been putting money into things like, well, presumably pro-realtor candidates. Um, I didn't really dig into all the candidates they were funding, but definitely like, you know, police funding and and quote unquote public safety things and stuff like that. So like PACs donate to each other. And and so tracking the money becomes really difficult, right? Because you're then talking about a PAC that also gets donations. So where did their money come from? And then I also noticed that... um, the local uh, police unions with scare quotes around it because those aren't really unions and cops aren't workers, but those police unions also have PACs and that's how they move the money around, which isn't something I understood. Yeah. So, so lots of PACs moving around and moving money around. Uh, much of it feels like a way to obscure the sources of funding to me, but I, I realize that there's like com- competing interests, right? I'm sure the secretary of state kind of wants, well, I assume the Secretary of State wants stuff to be more public and that all of the politicians want things to be less public. But of course, the Secretary of State's a politician, right? Oh, yeah. The incentives here are uh, a little a little screwy. So I wanted to summarize for a minute where we are. So we've got packs. There's two kinds. There's issue packs, which um, like the simple issue packs, which are tracked in Orstar and can coordinate with candidates. And then there's super packs, which are not tracked in Orstar? So most super PACs are federal level. So they're tracked by the FEC rather than because there's um, differences between what's tracked at the federal level and the state level. And yeah, it's it's a little complicated. But your summary of it was it's a lot harder to see to track where the money goes in super PACs. Right. Um, at least for an Oregon registered PAC that is taking in donations and spending money on Oregon campaigns, they're supposed to be reporting everything through Orstar. Mostly they do. Um, and there are, you know, some ways to report without like sharing too much information. So it's still pretty opaque, even with that transaction information. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then following on what Josh mentioned about PACs giving to other PACs, um, that's really common. There's also lots of uh, situations where somebody will give money to multiple PACs or to say, a pack and a local uh, business boosting group. Mm-hmm. It's also a way to kind of um, move around uh, constraints on what an individual can do oh, right. with their money in terms of an election as well. Because that because there are donor limits, right? In Oregon, there there aren't that many limits on what an individual can do with their <laughs> money, um, or a pack, or anyone else. Uh, involved in candidate in uh, campaign finance, but there are uh, city level uh, laws. There are county level laws that will put some constraints on on somebody. So, mm-hmm. for instance, we've seen Phil Knight make some very impressively large donations to candidates. Um, just in this election, he's given, um, I think, $100,000 to Kevin Martin in the Washington County DA race. He's given, um, I think, nearly a quarter of a million dollars to Betsy Johnson in the governor's race. Wow. 
he's a little less uh, worried about <laughs> these campaign regulations because he can afford to figure out how to, to do all these things. But at the same time, you don't see donations of that size from Phil Knight to a Multnomah County commissioner's race or to a city of Portland commissioner's race because there are caps on individual spending in both uh, localities. I guess that's our that's our next place where money comes from our individuals, <laughs> very rich individuals. So what what are the caps at the city and county level in Portland? So uh, on the city level, there's a cap of, let's see, I believe $500 per individual in terms of what you can donate. And then across the full election, an individual is only supposed to donate $5,000. So in, you know, this primary race that we're looking at, there's um, two city commissioner races and a city auditor race. And in theory, (laughs) if there were more, you could spend up to $5,000 on the race, but you're really only supposed to spend $500 on each race. Ah, I didn't actually realize there was an election level cap. Yeah, um, but there are also effective caps i don't i don't think that's the correct phrase for it like technically speaking but it's how i think about it so within portland we've got this small donors election program right Mm -hmm. and the first 20 dollars of an individual's donation to a candidate is matched so for a lot of people that 20 dollars has become an effective limit because that's that's what gets matched the most and to participate in the small donor elections program, candidates actually have to agree to an even lower cap for the donations that they're accepting. There's also um, a cap on how many donations you can get as an individual that you can get matched by the city program. And that's on a per candidate level or is that on a election level? That is on an election level. And in this current Portland city race, (laughs) Are all the candidates participating in the the public matching program? All of the candidates whose names you know probably are. <laughs> Setting aside the city auditor race, um, there's something like 20 candidates between the two commissioner seats who are running. And um, of those candidates, Julianne Hardesty is doing matching donations. Uh, Vadim Mozirsky is, uh, Renee Gonzalez is, Dan Ryan is, AJ McCreary is. I think that might be it. You're right. Those were all the candidates I know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the interesting thing about the way that the matching program works is that to even start the process of qualifying uh, a candidate has to submit paperwork at the ve- by the very beginning of January. And the registration deadline for candidates isn't until March. So for candidates who get in the race later, it's substantially less likely that they will qualify for that program. So individuals have these caps on how much they can give to candidates. Are there caps for how much a PAC can donate to a candidate? Uh, In other states, yes. In Oregon, not really. There are some uh, limits on what a super PAC can do in Oregon. Um, Interesting. But that's that's about it. And it's a very high limit. It's 
it's not a limit worth worrying about. Um, but every every locality is kind of different. Um, oh, with one exception, uh, Metro basically plays by Multnomah County's rules. Um, okay. So they they <laughs> kind of share a set of rules, sort of. Everybody else makes up their own rules, though. I think the thing I was thinking about for city of Portland elections is that if you're participating in the small donor stuff, that's when um, businesses can't donate to you. Um, yeah, they can't donate I'm, to I'm you. I'm remembering at all? something specifically I was tracking. Uh, yeah, because um, you're kind of signing up to be well, small donors, right? So the the um, small donors program, like candidates, agree to a whole list of restrictions that are not on their opponents. Um, and this is this is one of the things that going back to the mayoral race in 2020, um, that was kind of a big problem was that, you know, one candidate was playing by a set of rules that had nothing to do with the, the rules that anybody else was playing by. <laughs> um, and like one thing that I think is also worth noting is if you are running on those small donation programs, um, if you're running on those matched funds, the city will only match to a certain point. So in a um, primary for a city commissioner or city auditor, um, a candidate can only get $200,000 from matching funds. Um, if they're in the general election, they can then get another uh, 240,000 in matching funds. Um, the, the limits for mayoral candidates are 300,000 for primaries and, um, 450,000 for general elections. So if say somebody has $500,000 in the bank for some reason that we won't we don't know why people have money, right? <laughs> just, you know, just like it could be like a, a family business. Right. It could be a family business. It could be an inheritance. It could be some sort of windfall. But you have $500,000 that you can spend on a campaign. There's no incentive to participate in these small donor elections. So, yeah. it It is perfectly legal for a candidate to say, hey, I'm not going to do the small donor elections. I'm going to go do my own thing because I don't need the city's help with fundraising. There are still rules on official campaigns, though. There are some spending rules, right? Like what what on the Portland level are some some rules that a campaign not doing the small donor has to abide by? A candidate still is required to report all their transactions. And even though it's a local election, uh, Orstar uh, is the, the sort of reporting body for all elections in the, the city, in the, I'm sorry, in the state. Um, there are some uh, limitations on what you can spend money for. It's supposed to be expenses related to your campaign. But depending on um what you're running for and how you're running and all of those other details there's a lot of um different things that you can argue are campaign expenses some of the the research that's best available is actually on state level races just because there's less i guess incentive to do this sort of analysis on local races 
Um, but there are plenty of examples of um, state representatives and state senators using their campaign funds for things like living expenses, um, including after they've gotten elected. There's, um, you know, all the, the standard uh, expenses of a campaign, like uh, marketing materials and advertising and things like that. But also paying uh, fines for campaign violations is considered a campaign expense. <laughs> Hiring a lawyer uh. to sue the secretary of state to put you on a ballot, um, even though you haven't lived in a state long enough to be on that ballot, that is a legitimate campaign expense. Interesting. <laughs> There's oftentimes like a pool of money after a campaign. And one thing I was surprised by is it seemed that they just can like convert themselves to PACs. Can you tell me anything about that? Like, oh, yeah. How come that money can just <laughs> stay there when a campaign's mm-hmm. over? So when a campaign's over, say, say going off of that same train of thought, you, you sued the state and the state Supreme Court was like, no, dude, you're still not on the ballot. And you've raised a couple million dollars from people outside the state. What do you do with all that money you have left over? Well, after you pay all your lawyer bills and uh, any other outstanding expenses, you can do a bunch of things with it. You can just let that money sit in that account forever if that's the way you're feeling. There's no requirement that you return money to uh, donors. There's no requirement that you shut down a campaign account when the campaign is done, anything like that. You can also do a couple of other things. You can donate it to other candidates. Um, Going back to that example of uh, Kevin Barton running for re-election in the Washington County DA's race, um, so he's gotten money from Phil Knight um, for this this go round. He's also gotten donations from Newt Bueller's government or governor uh, campaign account. So 2018, mm. um, one of the big donors that kind of ensured that Bueller had money left over. Interestingly enough, it's also Phil Knight. <laughs> It all is connected in some way or another. Um, That is kind of effectively rolling your campaign funds over to a PAC. You can also um, Mm -hmm. hand that money over to an existing um, organization, usually like uh, a state party's funds or something like that. Um, There are some situations in which that money can be withdrawn and given to essentially a nonprofit that doesn't come up very often for some reason. (laughs) But like the most common thing that we see is uh, a candidate with leftover funds using that money for other candidates to help them get uh, elected, Mm -hmm. which again makes it a little bit harder to follow the money because you have a candidate in this year's race who's receiving funds from the candidate who didn't win two years ago, four years ago, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and you have to like try to figure out who the donors were from that campaign and what money was probably left over. So yeah, it is very opaque. Just to go over this a little bit. So we're talking about the money sources and how money comes in. We talked a little bit about uh, super PACs, which are the federal level Big, massive things, not necessarily something we'll get into a lot here. We've got PACs, um, which are the 
political action committees or political alliance committees. Um, and that's things like uh, the um, United for Portland, I think it was called, or something like that. Uh, the anti-progressive PAC from 2020's Portland mayoral election. Then we got public funds, so things like the small donor election program um, where donations are matched. Um, yeah, and then, of course, individuals, which in the city and county level for us um, are pretty uh, relatively well-limited, but in, in Oregon and the state at large are not basically unlimited and, and don't really have any caps at all, right? Right. Yeah, and I read that all off Thursday's notes just to, to <laughs> let everybody know that it wasn't like all in my head. <laughs> just to, to make sure that I'm covering everything. Businesses can donate, but a lot of businesses, especially larger ones, will set up a pack to handle their donations, but there's not a requirement they do so. Similarly, unions or nonprofits will also often have a pack. So a lot of unions will have the pack handle their donations to a candidate. Um, Planned Parenthood, for example, has packs that handle their donations to candidates as well. Got it. So they, they don't have to, but that's mm -hmm. the thing a lot of them do. Probably for tax implications and yeah, stuff like and that. And reporting. So it also seems like sometimes there are other entities that are not PACs, that are not campaigns, that are not individuals in play. Um, we were talking before we started recording about um, some nonprofit entities that can come into play in, in politics. Sure. I am going to say that there, there are some differences between what's supposed to happen and what actually happens when we talk about <laughs> this part of campaign finance. So what's supposed to happen is most nonprofits are not supposed to do a lot of political work. It's not supposed to be their core work. Um, so a 501c3 usually has a specific mission that they're supposed to be uh, working on so uh, so does a 501c4. Um, a church, for example, is a nonprofit organization that's not supposed to be involved in politics. There are um, some ways around this legally speaking. So legally speaking, um, a organization that's like a 501c3 or a 501c4, can talk about issues, not candidates, just issues. They can also report on things that have already happened, like saying such and such happened in the last election. But they're not supposed to endorse candidates directly. They're not supposed to be working for uh, politics as their main thing. So Exactly what their main thing is depends on what kind of nonprofit they are. Um, a 501c4, for example, is usually what's called a social welfare organization. So uh, while uh, they can, you know, occasionally touch on politics, they're more likely to be doing something like uh, legal aid or uh, unionization efforts or something like that. Um, unions are sometimes 501c4s. Now, here in Portland, <laughs> we have an example of a 501c4 that is um, strangely involved in politics uh, to the point where it's, you know, probably a violation. Um, and that, that's, of course, people for Portland. So um, there is already one violation uh, that's been reported to the Secretary of State. Um, they've 
people for Portland has done some advertising where they have named specific candidates, such as Lynn Peterson, who is running for re-election for Metro Council, um, and clearly has targeted certain candidates for defeat. So that that is against the rules. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, a lobbyist, um, uh, Michael, Sel- I may be mispronouncing his name, but I believe it's Michael Salvaggio, reported them to the Secretary of State for Oregon to talk to <laughs> them about whether, in fact, they are violating the law. Um, the thing that makes this a little bit more complicated is that People for Portland has followed certain reporting laws, just not around campaign reporting. They are reporting their lobbying activity. Um, So we don't know the last quarter's worth of lobbying activity yet, but we know that in 2021, uh, the organization spent about $1.2 million on lobbying in uh, the city of Portland. The Portland Business Alliance got in trouble for not reporting lobbying, for instance, and I think the fine was $420? $450, and that- $450. That was the largest fine that uh, the city auditor's office has issued since 2016. So, like, I'm just like trying to scale things a little bit. So first, they're not supposed to be talking about candidates really. But it seems like the thing they only get in trouble for is like whether or not they report on it. Got it. So if they report on it, even if they're not really supposed to be doing it, because it's like they're not primarily doing it as more the thing. So if as long as they report on it, they're mostly okay. But if they don't report on it, they could be spending $1.2 million and get a $450 fine. Correct. It doesn't really seem like a, a big stick. Oh, oh no. No, it isn't. Um, and in fact... Well, that's the the level that we see for lobbying. Um, it's also about the level of fines we often see for campaign finance issues. So the most common campaign finance violation in the state of Oregon is not reporting transactions on time. And mm-hmm. the fine for not reporting transactions on time is limited to at most 10% of the donation that wasn't reported. Seems like you could just work that into your math. It, it can easily be a budgeted item at that point. Yeah. It's also interesting, like, who gets hit with these penalties as well. Uh, most of the penalties are um, against candidates or elected officials. So uh, the only other lobbying uh, violation in the city of Portland after 2016, um, besides Portland Business Alliance, was that uh, when she was commissioner, Chloe U. Daly reported some stuff uh, 14 days late. And for that, she was fined, I believe, 140 bucks for, the, for one infraction and then another 50 for a secondary infraction. So Chloe U. Daly, with her relatively small budget, um, got a penalty on the same order of magnitude as P- Portland Business Alliance, which mm-hmm. I find interesting. And people for Portland so far, none. <laughs> no fines yet. <laughs> so talking about um, the fines and the kind of um, 
I don't know, holding people to any of these rules or laws. Um, at least in the city of Portland, I believe that's up to um, a combination of the auditor and the city attorney. Is that accurate? Yes. But let, let's dig a little deeper because, as usual, <laughs> that is sadly more what's supposed to happen than what actually happens. <laughs> so um, the city auditor is responsible for enforcing those caps and any uh, uh, reporting requirements, things like that. The city auditor um, gets their budget from the city council. So the mayor and the city commissioners decide how much money the city auditor gets in order to pursue any violations, any uh, complaints, anything like that. The city council also decides when the city auditor can use the city attorney on any of these issues. So going back to that mayoral election we've been talking about, the city council decided whether or not the auditor's office could use a city attorney to pursue a complaint against the Wheeler campaign. Now, Ted Wheeler did recuse himself from that decision. You know, way to way to meet the absolute bare minimum <laughs> of ethics there, my dude. Um, but with a city commission as small as ours and with, you know, a public vote, it's not surprising that the city auditor's request was denied. So mm-hmm. then the city auditor basically has to look at office budget and say, can I afford an outside lawyer to pursue this complaint? The city auditor can go back to the city council and say, hey, can I have extra money to hire this lawyer? But if they've already said no to the city attorney, <laughs> they will also yeah. often say no to an additional expenditure. Mm-hmm. Um. I'd also add that the city council can assign responsibilities to the auditor's office without the auditor agreeing to it. So Uh. when they make that budget, they can say, oh, this budget has to cover all these things that we've decided that you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, this is showed up in a lot of other political issues around Portland. So as an example, the city auditor um, just very recently said, hey, this police accountability commission that you're doing, that's a new thing. I don't want it in the office. You haven't given me budget for it. I really want you to take it back. And that was assigned to the office without the auditor's permission. And the auditor is basically just saying, yeah, sure, you can assign it, but we're not going to do that work. Um, Interesting. So, so yeah. So while the auditor is theoretically this completely independent office, uh, that independence is... If you were like a really nefarious person, so I'm not saying anyone is, but if you were mm-hmm. um, on city council, <laughs> um, you could be like, I'm running for re-election. I'm actually going to just cut the auditor's budget ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Just... I'm just going to I'm just going to get rid of the whole thing or, you know, effectively get rid of enough that they can't investigate me in my next upcoming election. 
Absolutely. And you need the consent of two other people, really, because for a vote on the budget, you just need three people. So you just need you just need two people being like, yep, you're good to go. Yep. And I don't want to say that no responsibility or accountability should be given to the city auditor in this whole mess as well, because the auditor does kind of get to decide which rules they're going to enforce on top of everything else that's going on. So during the 2020 election, um, we were essentially waiting on a an Oregon Supreme Court decision on how constitutional are these uh, contribution caps. Mm-hmm. And uh, Caballero, Mary Hull Caballero, our current city auditor, was like, well, there's no decision. I'm just going to not enforce any of this because I can do that. I mm-hmm. don't really need anybody to tell me one way or the other. Similarly, the Secretary of State gets to make a lot of decisions about which rules um, they do and don't uh, apply. So, um, this is probably a good time to talk about uh, ballot measures for campaign re- uh, reform because the three ballot measures that transparency advocates put forward um, is this state. This is state level. This is state level. Yeah, um, but the the three that they put forward, the Secretary of State's office has decided don't meet requirements and won't be on the ballot this year. Hmm. This is one of those things that is a little bit complicated and you start pulling on threads. Because the Secretary of State also is an elected office. Oh, there are far more threads than just that. <laughs> All right. So let's let's do the full thread. Let's do the full red red string on this one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, just to, to give a little bit more contextual information. At the beginning of, I believe, December, Honest Elections Oregon uh, filed three ballot measures. Honest Elections Oregon, is this a PAC? No, this is um, this is a local group that is headed up by Jason Kafori and has been working on campaign reform in Oregon for years and years and years. And what type of an organization are they? They're a nonprofit. Okay. <laughs> Yes, when I say Kafori, I do mean a cousin of the Multnomah County Commissioner, just because Portland, <laughs> it turns out, is tiny. These three ballot measures uh, were developed by Honest Elections Oregon in uh, conversations with all these different stakeholders, unions, League of Women Voters, a bunch of good governance groups, a bunch of people came together and said, this is generally what we're thinking. Now, a lot of those groups didn't sign on for these being the final version. And that's an important note. So, like, several of the unions were like, yes, but this would also limit our ability to give money. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to actually write our own ballot measures and propose that. So there's three other ballot measures on campaign finance reform besides the three that I'm talking about here, just to keep things interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, in February, uh, Shamia Fagan, the Secretary of State, was like, oh, these three ballot measures from Honest Elections Oregon 
don't contain the full text of the Oregon law that they'll change. Therefore, on that technicality, I am disqualifying them from the ballot. Now, on paper, that means that they can go and get more signatures, requalify everything like that. In reality, that late in the game, it's already probably going to be impossible for them to get on the ballot for 2022 if their um, if their initial proposal was deemed incorrect for any reason. So uh, when something like that happens, do they have to start completely over with the signature gathering? Yeah. It's like a brand new process. Right. So they do have the the ability to take it to, you know, a higher power being the, uh, the Oregon Supreme Court and be like, hey, we think that Shamia Fagan is interpreting the law incorrectly. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. So they did. And the Oregon Supreme Court was like, well, as far as we can tell, Secretary of State is acting within her power. So two weeks ago, maybe that's when the Supreme Court came back with that decision. But we need to talk about two things here. First, is this a technicality that has kept anything else off the ballot? Hmm. And second, how did Shamia Fagan become aware of this technicality issue? There have been many ballot measures that did not meet this technical requirement. The 2019 uh, ballot measure for uh, legalizing the use of mushrooms in uh, clinical settings did not meet this requirement. It was on the ballot. It passed. No problems. There's been several others, though um, I haven't found any examples from this election cycle yet. Now, how did Shamia Fagan find out about this issue? Well, according to her office, you know, it's part of the standard review. They noticed it. They informed it, uh, the honest elections folks, and, you know, off the ballot. The thing is, Shamia Fagan got a letter in February from Michael Salvaggio, who I mentioned earlier uh, about putting in the complaint against people uh, for Portland. Interesting. Salvaggio's day job is that he's a lobbyist. He's uh, a lobbyist for uh, United uh, Food Workers, for um, the Oregon Coalition of Police and Sheriffs, Audubon Society of Portland, a couple of other places. United Food and Commercial Workers is one of the largest unions in Oregon. They're very active in politics. They give a lot of money to candidates, including, as it turns out, Shamia Fagan for her Secretary of State race in 2020. They gave her $50,000. Ah. So <laughs> when you start pulling these threads, you're like, oh, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's talking to everybody. And everybody's kind of working from the same playbook. So whether or not the Secretary of State caught this technicality on a review of everybody's paperwork, it still looks a little, um, let's go with complicated. Complicated is a Mm -hmm. fair word to use. doesn't make any assumptions about who knows knew what when (laughs) it certainly shows the potential for corruption whether or not it occurred right i'm interested if you have any thoughts on why you might have reported that and what that might be about because i would assume that at least people for portland and the cops union would be pretty well aligned but maybe i'm missing some nuance there or some reason why Salvaggio or 
their clients might want people for Portland to face some opposition or whatever. I, I obviously don't know what goes on in, in his business or in his head. Of course. The things that I find noteworthy here, though, is that the concern about people for Portland isn't the content of their message. It's whether they're playing by the rules that, you know, the other lobbyists have to play by. Mm. Ah. And I do think that people for Portland is more likely to be forced to play by the rules than to change their position on anything. So <laughs> Right, right. Okay. I think that there's less concern about the impact of what they're doing than the way that they're doing it. Got it. So as a lobbyist, hypothetically, right, we can't read their mind, but as a lobbyist, it makes sense that they would not want other lobbyists to be able to move a bunch of money that they can, right? Like, because then their work is less valuable, less significant or whatever. That that makes sense and, and definitely uh, leads me further away from conspiracy theories, which I think before. <laughs> I got caught in a side conspiracy theory where now I'm very upset that the Audubon uses the same lobbying group as as uh, <laughs> the, what is it? The, the Oregon Coalition of Police and Sheriffs, yeah. So now, now I'm going to write some emails to the Audubon. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy with all of this to stray into conspiracy theory territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sadly, a substantial amount of it is happening in the open. And mm -hmm. a lot of the organizations involved don't have any need to hide information. So taking mm -hmm. them at their word while it feels a little weird is probably okay because they're not concerned with people knowing that they're, you know, very pro-police or anything like that. They're not concerned right, right, with right. people knowing that like, people for Portland is actively pursuing a ballot measure that criminalizes poverty. And that's mm -hmm. not something they're hiding. It is interesting, though, um, because, you know, you're talking about like not hiding things like they're having to report things. But when I talk to just like my neighbors and just my coworkers, people just out in the world, they actually have no idea about any of these things that have been reported. They only see like the front messaging. So it might be sort of like a, I don't need to hide because nobody's looking kind of a mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. um, like mm -hmm. I, I think most people don't know like who that is, like who is it and what are their incentives? Um, and so they'll just see a message like, it's so inhumane that we're letting people sleep on the streets. And it's like, I agree with that. I mean, I personally agree with that too, <laughs> but they don't actually see where the money is coming from and what the actual ballot measure does and aren't connecting the dots. So they don't even need, why would they need to hide if they can just mark it? I guess it's my my argument. <laughs> exactly. I think you're you're spot on there. Like there's there's not news sources that are really great about highlighting those problems. Like this is one of the reasons I do my site. I think this is one of the reasons y'all do this podcast. But there's the media coverage of things like campaign finance reform is relatively minimal. Like it's not considered mm -hmm. something that's going to bring in adv advertisers. It's not considered something that's going to bring in new mm -hmm. readers. So even at the best intentioned outlets, there's not as much coverage as there frankly needs to be. 
Mm-hmm. It is hard to cover. And I'm also thinking about the fact that all of these organizations are suing each other like back and forth or taking each other to court or reporting each other to the regulatory agency. And it's like, there's kind of like a little bit of a risk. And like, what if I accidentally get something wrong? Now I'm in this mess of like getting sued and because mm-hmm. uh, that's where all of it is. Um, so there's a, I feel like there would be a potential for there to be a hesitancy to even report on it because of just like the adversarial nature of what's already happening between all those different organizations. Absolutely. And to add a whole nother level of excitement to any lawsuits, of course, judges here in Oregon are also elected and also may have campaign finance committees. And have a stake in the rules being a way that favors them in whatever way, whether or not they act on that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But they have a stake. 